Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place and God's Story. I'm Jamie Dawn. I'm Heather Strong-Moore. So we've talked about Jesus's genealogy and the powerful example of his mother, Mary. This week, we're talking more about Jesus and the radical dignity, kindness, and mutuality he modeled with the women around him. As a first century rabbi, Jesus's ministry was truly revolutionary. This will be the first of several episodes looking at the ministry of Jesus and the inclusion of women. Let's dig in. So from the birth narrative that elevates the voice of Mary to Jesus's presentation in the temple to the inclusion of women in his public ministry, Jesus's story really differs from other first century rabbis. We've seen women as a part of God's story throughout the narrative that we've been building in the last, you know, 15 episodes or so. Um, and we're getting to a really different point of redemptive history. And it uh, just continues to change everything for women, the way that Jesus um, includes women and invites us into the story in just even fuller ways. So we are really excited to get into that. And we just want to remind you of even the episodes around menstruation, um, the woman caught in adultery, just there's been so many places where we've talked about Jesus. And so we, we aren't going to revisit some of those stories that we've already talked about, but those are just more pieces of this whole of the ministry of Jesus and the way that Jesus included women and significantly changed the way that women were included in the, um, the story of what he was doing on the earth. And so it's important for us just before we continue to dig in here for us to just name again, that rabbis would not have definitely wouldn't have taught women, women that they would not have included them in their ministry, that there were many places where they probably wouldn't have talked to women, where they wouldn't have really engaged them, certainly on any level of like mutuality. Um, and then again, that there were many places where like the woman with the issue of blood, that there were many times where women were seen as ceremonially unclean and, um, just all of these pieces where rabbis were really distant from women um, and women would even be in a slightly different place in the temple um, for worship than other men, um, even like what we would kind of see as like lay people in the church, um, that equivalent in the Jewish uh, culture, the men would be allowed into a different space in the temple than women were. And so, so much changes when, as we're getting into these stories, it's important for us to kind of have that backdrop of what it means that Jesus is entering this story in such a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad you painted that picture, Jamie. And even as you and I were talking before this episode, I think we both can fall into this. I think other people do too, because the new Testament is just more often taught in churches and Bible studies, it can be somewhat easy to think that there's not as much to uncover when we're reading these stories, because some of them are just more known to us. Like probably many of us didn't know the story of Huldah in the Old Testament. So it was easier in our 
first section of our podcast, as we were talking about the Old Testament, to assume, oh, these are new things that aren't often discussed. So this is great new material. And when we get to the New Testament, I at least can sometimes have kind of a (laughs) ho-hum attitude, I'm ashamed to say, because it is in our modern evangelical context, we just mostly stay in the New Testament. And so even our stories about Mary were pretty familiar to all of us. And yet I felt like we uncovered some really beautiful new layers just in our last two episodes about Mary alone. So I'm excited for myself and for you and I, Jamie, for the challenge of coming to these passages with fresh eyes and not kind of assuming that we already know everything or feeling overly familiar with them. And I hope that that will be true for our listeners as well, that there really will be some really special and affirming new layers that we can uncover together. That's so good. And I think just such an invitation for us to keep growing, like that's the consistent invitation I think from the Lord as we come to the word is that we would keep seeing new aspects of who God is and I kind of just want to reiterate what's in our like podcast description that we're not adding anything to scripture we're just uncovering the layers that have been put on and so even as we're talking about like a newness to it it's more like a freshness than um that we're like adding anything and I hope you know, that'll be pretty clear as we go on. But I think, yeah, it's just so important for us to even name that reality that even in these passages that are so familiar to us, there's been so many layers that have been added on to them um, and added on to the character of Jesus. And so I think that's why it's really important for us to uncover some of these things, because it helps us see God more accurately and the character and nature of Jesus. And so that's part of why I'm so excited for us to dig into some of these stories, because I think like we just see so much of the heart of God as we are looking at the way that Jesus interacts with women. Mm -hmm. And I just think this is such an important discipline and attitude as Christians in general, as women of the word, as men of the word who are listening, that we should never approach scripture thinking that it's old hat, that it's already completely known to us and that we've arrived in our knowledge of scripture. One of my favorite things about the Bible is that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I mean, that's what truly makes it a divine document, a divine word, is that it continues to come alive in new ways over time. And even stories that are incredibly familiar that maybe you've read more times than you can count, that you can still, the spirit can still reveal fresh things to you and speak to your heart in fresh ways. That's the beauty of God's word. And that's, I do, I think the joy and the, the curiosity that we should always bring to the word. And so I think what we want to do around women specifically is something that we want to do with scripture all the time. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I think I've heard that like ancient rabbis had this saying around the scripture being like a jewel that you just kept turning to see like a new part Mm -hmm. of it. And I, I really love that image of like, we're just trying to see it in a different light and in like, see what kind of is sparkling in that Mm -hmm. sense. And I think, um, yeah, I just think that's a really beautiful picture for us. So I think, um, I think we'll start here by picking up. So we have talked about, 
uh, Mary, and we've really covered those places where Jesus is um, in this kind of birth narrative. And so we're picking up right after that with Jesus being presented in the temple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we left y'all on a cliffhanger last episode, <laughs> teasing that we were going to talk about Anna, where we talked about her when we talked about Hulda and Deborah as well. So here we are, we're finally reading her story. Um, so she, her story is connected to another person in the temple to a man named Simeon. And we're going to pick up in Luke chapter two, where we spent some time last week as well. Um, and so Jesus is presented in the temple, meaning for him to be circumcised when he's eight days old, which again is showing Mary and Joseph's devotion to the law and their devotion to following Yahweh wholeheartedly. And so there's a man named Simeon who had a divine revelation from God that he wouldn't die until he had seen the, the Messiah. So we have this really beautiful story of the spirit leading him into the temple to see Jesus. He he has a really beautiful song of praise. And so it's in the midst of that story that we're going to pick up. So we're in Luke 2. I'm going to read verses 36 through 38. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So we're seeing Anna is someone who was in vocational ministry, that she had served in the temple for her entire adult life, and that because she was there, there's this kind of beautiful serendipitous moment of her encountering this scene and her also receiving this revelation as she's seeing Jesus and hearing Simeon's revelation also that the Lord shares that with her as well. And she gets to encounter Jesus so early <laughs> in his life, literally he's eight days old. Um, and then she begins to spread the gospel. Like she's immediately then a messenger of the word. And so it's a short little chapter, little section. It's only three verses, but it packs a lot in of what we're learning about Anna and the role that she had in the community of faith at that time. Yeah, I think um, even just now, like that reality that she's speaking to others about the redemption of Israel is like standing out to me, even in a new way that she is probably like one of the first um, people to declare that the Messiah is like in their midst, that their redemption is coming. And, um, and obviously she is a faithful woman doing that. And so I just think I love that reality that she is like a prophet and a preacher who is declaring the good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you had mentioned this, Jamie and I, you talked about this beforehand. One of our favorite things about her is that she was seemingly a widow from a very young age and judging from her lifestyle, the fact that she lived in the temple from the time of her husband's death, you could only do that if you didn't have children. So whether she was barren or perhaps they just hadn't been able to conceive yet. And then 
her husband passed, whatever the case may be, she's, it's extremely likely that she doesn't have kids. And so she's a woman who's single for her adult life and is in vocational ministry. And I do think that is such an important addition to our great cloud of witnesses of what it can look like to be a woman in the faith that we've seen many mothers, which is wonderful and a gift. And I think it's just really important that we also highlight Anna was a woman who was single without kids and served the Lord her whole life and found rich fulfillment in that and got to saw, got to see the Messiah in the midst of that. And that's an incredible blessing that she's part of. So she's one of many really important role models where women in any, any status of life, any, any season of life can find someone to relate to and see someone living out their faith in a vibrant way. Yeah. I, I love that about her, that she is just such a model for us of what a different kind of like woman in ministry and scripture can look like. And that it's clear that the Lord favors that, that not over someone else. Uh, that's not what I mean by favor, but in the way that in the same way that Mary um, experienced the favor of the Lord, but that um, Anna experiences that. And so I, I just think we, we need to point out those places where God is blessing the ministry of a single woman without children. And honestly, I just get so stirred reading the story of a woman who was faithful for like, at the very least 50 years, but probably mm-hmm. way more than that, honestly, um, just praying and fasting. And so she's such a model for me of what it looks like to be like long suffering and waiting for the promises of the Lord and to know, like, I wonder she's known as a prophet. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. like what all she was prophesying. Like we don't get that, um, from her story in the text, but I'm so curious about like, what were the kinds of words that maybe even as they came out of her mouth seemed crazy um that like this seems too good to be true that we would actually see the redemption of Jerusalem in our day um and I just think about that for her when I see like it's not an accident that we see her age that we see like she has been faithful for a long time and she has been stewarding hope and thinking about like this coming Messiah for a long time and continuing to stay faithful in that place. And so for me, it's such a model of like, I don't think Anna would be in many ways, like our example of like top ministry moguls. Like she just is sitting in the prayer room all day, basically. Um, And who knows, like for years, people were probably like, Anna's a prophet and also like some of her words don't come to pass like she's been talking about the redemption of Jerusalem and like and so I just think about um her fruit probably looked different than um than in some ways like what we would dream for our lives and yet she just remains so faithful Mm -hmm. absolutely and I think her story is so important for us to hold alongside 
other stories that we talked about, especially in our episode about Deborah and Holda of women that show up when no one else is. And if we pair this as well, thinking about her time period, as we talked about the book of Esther being the last book before a period of silence, for us as modern readers who are who have the complete biblical canon, it's so easy for us to look to see Malachi and then flip straight to Matthew and be mm-hmm. like, okay, and then Jesus is here. And in reality, the Israelites had over 400 years of silence from God. And I don't want to diminish the impact of people who remain faithful during that time. I mean, that's unbelievable that for 400 years without getting new scripture from God, without getting new revelations from God, they kept believing and they kept worshiping and they kept showing up and they kept gathering as a community. And so I think Anna is such a beautiful continuation of that beautiful legacy of women and people, Simeon included, who kept believing, who stayed faithful, even when it wasn't easy to do so, even when there wasn't a lot of just positive pressure to do so. And something that I think about with Anna, especially, you know, we keep talking about her in relation to these other women and what often happens, this has been so clear to me just over the course of us recording this podcast is that these stories about women, there are so many of them, but we act like they all happen in isolation. And whenever we have read them in the past, we treat them as some kind of special one-off that Ruth is, a, is an individual story. And we never connect it to Esther as two books that have a lot in common and are both beautifully written and have a lot of things going on. We never connect Deborah and Hulda, and we never connect Deborah and Hulda and Anna And I think that's such a tool of patriarchy and just of a classic tool of oppression to make marginalized people feel like they're the only ones and to feel cut off from others like them and to feel like our stories happen in isolation. And I think we've completely done that to these stories of women in scripture. And we treat them like, oh, this was a one-time isolated incident. And we don't treat them like an intentional, normal pattern from God of the ways that he's raising up his people and the ways that they get to build on one another's stories and move in the legacy of those who've come before them. And so I hope that our listeners, that y'all have been noticing that the, the interconnectedness of all of these stories, the commonalities of all of these stories, and how much Anna, I think, really embodies that for me of the ways that she's one of many women who are sharing in her faith and faithfulness. Yeah, that's so good. Cause we make those women like the exception to the rule that like women aren't included rather than the reality that God consistently, as we're seeing is making space for women. And even like in the law, you know, like making a different kind of statement than every other surrounding law. Um, and like regulation. And so I think to see Anna as not an exception, but as a long line of female prophets and people, and one of many who women who come after her are looking to. And so, yeah, I think there's so much that comes from when we have these stories in isolation that it becomes 
the exception rather than like, this is a part of how God is writing his story in the earth, that God is including women and inviting them to play really powerful, vital roles within it. Um, and I think, yeah, like you said, that's just such a tactic of oppression and of the enemy to try and like isolate stories. And so, so yeah, I hope that that has become clear and that it will continue to be so as we continue to look at the ministry of what, of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So on that note, we, we want to look at a story in Luke seven, that this one is somewhat of a smaller story. We're going to look at some stories today that are kind of heavy hitters. This one doesn't always get as much attention, but it is very similar to stories from first and second Kings and actions that the prophets do interactions that the prophets have with women. So this is a story of Jesus raising a widow's son, and I'm going to read it for us. So it's taking place, like I said, in Luke seven, I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. There's so many beautiful things to discuss in this chapter, in this little story. So one thing that jumped out to me right away is that First of all, the passage makes it clear that she's a widow. This is her only son. Luke paints a really clear picture that she is on the verge of poverty and destitution, that she's in a potentially very desperate place. So Jesus raises other people from the dead. He raises children from the dead, obviously his friend Lazarus. This is fairly unique in that he sees this specific situation of a woman who who's in just peril that like her whole place in life is about to be an upheaval. It's, it's deeper than normal grief. Not that really any grief is normal, but it's different than losing a child on its own, that then this has tremendous social implications for her as well. And so I love how Luke frames it. It says, when Jesus saw her, it's clear that Jesus performs the miracle for her sake. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say, oh, when he saw this dead young man, he wanted to raise the man. It says when he saw her, that he, he does this for the widow, for this mother. And then it says he gives the resurrected son back to his mother. And so from the beginning of Jesus noticing them, and then even after he's raised the son from the dead, his motivation and his actions are centering around this woman and this widow. And I just, he just has compassion on her. It's, it's so stunning to me how it's worded in the scripture. It says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. 
that there's just this moment of deep empathy and compassion and Jesus understanding what this means for her, that this is a multi-layered grief for her. And he wants to act on her behalf to intervene and, and change her situation and how much he's acting in line with the heart of God and the law to intervene for widows, to care for widows. And Jesus alone has the power to completely reverse her circumstances by bringing her son back from the dead. And he does that. And it's, it's such a wild, only Jesus <laughs> would take it to this level of instead of just maybe providing for her financially or something like that. He's like, you know what? I can make it so she's not alone in the world. And I'm going to do that for her because this is my heart for, for all women and for widows that they wouldn't be alone, that they would not be without resources, that they would have the support and care of their families. So I just think this is such a beautiful picture of Jesus acting with attention and compassion towards women. I love how you pointed out that Jesus is living into the law. Like I've just been so struck personally recently about how often when we talk about like Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, it's almost like he checked off the boxes and like God knew and gave us hints. And it's almost more like kind of in that sense. Um, and we don't always look at the way that Jesus just embodied and lived a lifestyle that was the only one who could fulfill fully the care that God put into the law, that he was the only one who could care for widows perfectly and that he alone can um, care for orphans in the way that like God really intended. And so I love the way that we see in this story that God is fulfilling the law by his heart for widows and orphans. And that, um, and to me, it's a reminder, like in these snippets that we see where Jesus is living into that, um, that we see the continuation of God's heart from the old Testament and the new Testament, that it's not like one, you know, posture that God had in the old Testament and, often, you know, we have this picture of kind of like scary, angry God of the old Testament and nice Jesus comes. And so what we see in this is Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is the God who cares for the widows and the orphans and puts it in the law and then lives into it when he's on the earth. And so I, I just love that in this small story, we, we get that picture of who God is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Cause I, I usually vaguely think when we think about Jesus fulfilling the law, that I just think about him being a moral person that mm -hmm. Jesus didn't sin. So I kind of see it as, oh, he didn't do bad things rather than also understanding Jesus was also propelled towards righteousness and goodness and seeking the flourishing of all people, which is what Israel was called to do. They're, the laws that God gives them are designed for the flourishing of their society. And so I, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Jamie, because yeah, it's not only that Jesus didn't sin, it's that he also was exemplifying the heart of God for the goodness of his people, mm -hmm. that Jesus is pursuing the good of those around him. Because I think we assume that he just does that because he's Jesus, 
But also he's doing that in response to the law because that's what the law was supposed to prompt (laughs) the people to do. And I do think we see often the law as sort of punitive or harsh or strange, and we lose sight of the ways that it was meant to be for the good of all people and the ways that Jesus, when he's seeking the good of all people, is actually, that's him following the law as well. That's so good. And that it ends up doing exactly what God set out for his people to do, which is be a blessing to the nation and to all nations, because the word of Jesus spreads throughout the whole country. And so Jesus is in some ways like fulfilling that of what the flourishing of the Jewish people is supposed to do, which is spread the, the fame of the, the Lord's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to put these references in the show notes of Jesus acting in the spirit of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha specifically. And the people recognize it in verse 16. They says, uh, they say a great prophet has appeared among us. They recognize right away what he's doing is in accordance, is in the same um, calling as the prophets before him. And so Elijah raises the son of a widow from the dead. Elisha raises multiple children from the dead. And one more distinction I want to make about Jesus and what makes him, sets him apart, is that in these stories with the prophets, the women had to come to the prophets to ask for help. And then the prophets responded. Uh, and what's so special about Jesus is the, the widow doesn't even know that he's there. I mean, she's focused on this funeral. She's focused on her grief. And Jesus just walks by. He doesn't know them. He's not there attending a funeral of someone he knows. He's just walking by. And this, I think, is such a beautiful picture of his attentiveness to women, to the lived experience of women, to immediately empathize with their lived experience. And I think like we talked about in the last episode about Mary, understanding what it's like to be a widow because his mom was a widow. And if a few things had been different, that could have been his mom there as well in that, in the place of that widow that he's seeing. And so there's something that I just think is so attentive and kind about the way Jesus is aware of the suffering of those around him and doesn't even have to be asked to intervene that he right away understands immediately, this is what this means for her. And I have the power to act, to change it for her. And I'm going to do it. I'm not even going to make her ask me to do it. I just see it. And I want to make, I want to bring healing and wholeness to this situation. That's, I love the way that you pointed out that, um, that she doesn't have to ask. And I think that the reality that Jesus is moved by compassion towards her like his heart for her moves him to act on her behalf in the way that only he can. And I think um, we see Jesus moved by compassion regularly in the gospels, but I do think that there's, it's more so like that language is used about his miracles for women um, that he is moved by compassion to act on their behalf. And um, it, it's certainly not exclusively towards women, but we just see that so often that he, the same language is used for the woman with the issue of blood, that he is moved by compassion to act on her behalf. Mm -hmm. So um, 
so we're putting together this picture of Jesus's ministry. So we see a healing here, a resurrection really. Um, and then we're looking at all of these different pieces that make up the whole of Jesus's ministry. And so um, we're looking at a different piece as we just flip right over to Luke eight, and you'll see a lot of our scriptures come from Luke. Um, and so we've talked about how Luke is really attentive to tell the stories of women that, um, Luke is writing to meet this kind of audience that would say Jesus is for everyone. And that's part of the theme that's supposed to be coming out in the book of Luke. And so you'll just notice that a lot of our scriptures are from Luke today. And that's um, a part of the gospel of Luke. So in chapter eight, we see um, these verses that are really powerful and so easy to just skip over here. So uh, in eight one, it says soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we get this picture of Jesus's like ministry supporters being women who are funding the ministry, who are participating in the ministry alongside of the disciples. Like, I think it's really powerful that language that it's the 12 were with him and also some women. And that would be, again, like we cannot emphasize enough that a first century like person hearing this story and hearing that women were traveling as a part of Jesus's itinerant ministry would have had like alarm bells going off like what women are there too and that they are funding the ministry out of their means and that this is really powerful and again a picture for us that has to reshape the way that when we hear the word disciple in the gospels we, it's so easy because of, uh, if you are at all familiar with the stories, um, it's just so easy to see that as predominantly and only men. And, um, and yet, like, when we really look at these texts, we see that women were a part of that discipleship that Jesus is doing in, in a core circle that they're compared to the 12. Like, that means that there's, something really like significant happening that that's the comparable example for us that they are likened to. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, I think this, these verses are game changers and I know I didn't notice them until recent years. I think maybe like the last two to four years, I can't remember when I first noticed them, but it's significantly recent in my life. I'm in my late thirties. So like I was not like 19. Um, <laughs> when I finally found these verses, I was in my mid thirties when I saw these and like, we're saying again, what are, what we, the way we describe our podcast is we're, we aren't adding anything new. We're uncovering what's already there. And we just don't talk about this. And I'm looking at a couple of different translations. This is a rare moment where the ESV 
actually highlights women more than the NIV. Normally it's a dramatic opposite. <laughs> uh, the NIV, the heading of chapter eight just says the parable of the sower. Like it doesn't really reference it at all. Yeah. Jamie just gave me a quizzical look of like, what? <laughs> um, and the ESV actually has a specific heading that says women accompanying Jesus for those verses. Um, and I just, yeah, they're just tremendous that women are actively traveling with them. That would have been unusual that they're not married. It's not their wives traveling with them. This is like the family of God, like Jesus was saying, his mother and brother and sisters that they are just traveling together like the family of God, which would have been very different from social norms. And you've got a really also beautiful range of women like Mary Magdalene, who probably would have been homeless when she's demon possessed, that she maybe, maybe not, but often people who are demon possessed were, they were unhoused. They didn't have any connection to society any further. And then you've got Susanna, who's very affluent and like has political connections. So I also love the way that these women represent a wide socioeconomic range of who Jesus sees fit to be part of his discipleship. That's so good. When we move on in the story, and we'll see this later when we look at the resurrection and, um, but these same women are named. So these women are really faithful that they are with Jesus to the end. And, um, and I think it's really powerful, especially, um, towards the crucifixion and the resurrection. The language is very clear that the women were ministering to Jesus, that it was not just that Jesus was ministering to the women, but that the women were ministering to Jesus and his disciples. And so that kind of mutuality is so powerful. And I think such an example for us. And I think I want to speak to like even men and ministry and um, leaders who would be listening to this of that example that Jesus sets that he is not afraid to have women as a part of his ministry. And we've seen the way that men try to use, I mean, in the news more and more, we are, it's coming to light the reality that men who try to use like legalism to protect themselves from women are actually like abusing women in the midst of that. And so I just think we have to rethink what we've been told is wisdom and look at what actually Jesus, the wisest one modeled for us in ministry, that he had a very clear mutuality between the 12 and these women who were joining him and that he invites women to play a significant role and that that doesn't like, he's not really afraid of the way that that would, um, be very radical to people. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that of course, Jesus would have been highly appropriate and would have had respectful right. boundaries with women, but we like, there's just no picture of him being like, I can't, I can't be around women. I, I just have really tight boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, I can only minister to men. It's inappropriate for me to talk to women. Jesus is just constantly reaching out to women and gives us such an important model. I think for male spiritual authorities, especially of what it can look like to be in a power position and 
to include women in that, to support them in really healthy ways, in ways that are not inappropriate or weird or exploitative, that it's possible to do that. It's possible to invest in women as a male in authority in a way that is just really healthy and encouraging. Yeah. And I think when we get to some of the passages later where we talk about Paul, the reality is like Paul wasn't a part of the 12, but the 12 would have been learning from Jesus in this way. And it would have become normalized for them that women are a part of their ministry. And so I think it's important for us to name that and think about, oh yeah, like when Priscilla is a leader in the early church later, they've already seen that modeled with Mary and Joanna and all these women that they were a part of ministry with. And so I think that's just important for us to take with us as we continue in the story. And I think one more thing I want to draw out from this is how often women are not discipled in finances. Like just, that's a real social reality in our country, but also I would say specifically in the church, like financial discipleship is not a part of women's ministry. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. and yet we get the invitation from this of what it is that these women, I think it's really beautiful that some of the only stories that we are coming to my mind, at least are like the widow's might that Jesus emphasizes. (laughs) And then we have this story of women who are supporting their ministry. And like, so when women are generous, I, I just think there's so much that can happen and, um, and that Jesus takes note of that, that we have that in the word. And it's not that, you know, one is better than the other, but I think so often it's not a part of the way that we are discipled as women. And so I want to encourage women who are you know, in their careers and thinking about what it looks like for them to be a part of God's story, that, um, a piece of that is there are finances and that we get to be a steward of that. And that, you know, whether you are like Mary, who probably had very little coming into it and yet was still supporting Jesus or Joanna, who probably had more means to give like, they are both noted for their generosity. And so I think that's such an encouragement for us as women to be generous and to be, have that be a significant part of our lives. Um, but that that's a powerful way that they were a part of the kingdom. And it's not the only way, but that, um, I just think it's so important because we, I've never heard at a women's ministry gathering anything about finances. Um, and so I think that's such an encouragement to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a super good point. And how Jesus is not emasculated by that. He's not emasculated by having to depend financially on women who are not his family members. Uh, and I, I think that's really important too, that I think he's just thankful and collaborative (laughs) and obviously he's also not a scrub. (laughs) Like he's not just (laughs) mooching. He doesn't need to go get a job, (laughs) but again, just a really healthy balance of he's a healthy man. Who's very obviously like guided and called in his work. And he's allowing women to be a key part of that and to support him financially. And he just welcomes that and sees that as a really 
wonderful gift and something that they have and something that he welcomes. That's, I just love that mutuality, but again, it's just really healthy mutuality of everyone getting to bring their gifts to the table and see the fruit of that together. That's so good. Yeah. I love that. Well, we are looking at more of um, the story of women who were a part of Jesus's story. So we're going to move on to Luke 10. Um, So again, continuing here in Luke, and we're looking at um, kind of a famous scene, infamous, depending on who you are or where you may have found your place in this story, um, between these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And I think we've often heard this uh, story, but I'm going to still read it for us. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So we, there's a lot that's happening here and a lot that has been said about it that, and a lot that's really not helpful. Cause I think, um, so much of like the patriarchal perspective of this has been to pit women against each other classically and to just say like, one woman is better. The other woman needs to learn from the other and just kind of make this like a story against each other. And I just, I think once again, we're putting a tone onto Jesus that I'm not sure he has. Like, I think when he says her name twice, it's to kind of catch her attention. Like, oh my gosh, Jesus must really mean what he's about to say. Cause he has addressed me twice and probably like softened her heart in that process. And cause she's like pissed at her sister. She's like, my sister is not helping me, which you pointed this out of how often Jesus, like the disciples come to Jesus with kind of these, um, questions. And I'm so struck. I'm like, did Jesus besides his mom, like, did Jesus often respond to these kind of quarrels that he's being invited into? Like, it doesn't seem like he does. We never get an answer like that, but Mm -hmm. multiple times people are like, Jesus, tell my sister to do what I say. Like, Jesus, do something for my sons. Like we, we kind of get this picture and I, I think it's funny. Um, but Mary is the one who is sitting at the Lord's feet. And this is a posture that women just would not have had. Uh, so I think she is listening to his teaching. She is there. And I really believe that part of what's happening here is that Martha is like, Jesus, you don't have to like put up with that. Like Mary doesn't have to sit at your feet. She is going outside of gender norms. She is doing something that is really different. Women are not supposed to do this. Jesus, you can tell her to help me. She's not helping. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a woman. And she is not. And Jesus, instead of saying like, you're right, she really should fit the gender norms. Those are biblical. 
Nope, not what Jesus says. Jesus says she has chosen the good portion and it can't be taken from her. That Jesus affirms her choice to sit at his feet and to break gender norms. That is a huge part of what's happening here. And and I really think that's part of what Martha is asking of Jesus is like, Jesus, will you affirm this? And so I think this is a really important passage for us to sit with because the church has, you know, just so often like put boxes around what women can and can't do and what they're supposed to look like. And I hope that as we've been digging into these stories, that some of those boxes have already uh, been broken, but we see in this passage so clearly that Mary is doing something that women are not typically doing, that she's sitting at the feet of a rabbi, very clearly taking the posture of a disciple. And Jesus says like, that is what she's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that, Jamie. I, you know, I have, you said it so well, I have very little to add. You just encapsulated that so beautifully of the many things that I think we misread about that story. And like you said, we focus more on women fighting with each other and almost make it like they're being catty. And in a way we treat, we act like Jesus is like, don't pull me into this of like, <laughs> I don't want to get involved in this drama um, <laughs> in a way of like, calm down ladies. <laughs> and yeah, I totally agree that part of what's at stake is that they're, Mary is violating gender norms and Martha is anxious about that because of patriarchy. <laughs> and Jesus is like, I don't, he's not reprimanding them for like fighting in some way. I think in some ways he's like, you've got some internalized patriarchy. I know that's, I'm using some buzzwords that people might get nervous <laughs> about, <laughs> but cause Jesus isn't just saying that, but yeah, but he's affirming, like, I think you're worrying about the wrong things, not just about like cleaning up, but about it's okay that you're stepping outside of what society's told you is possible. And I'm actually facilitating an environment for you to do that. Yeah. Cause if Jesus were only addressing like that, she was trying to get her chores done and needed her sister to help her. He could have said that, but instead what he says is like, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Like I get that this is, there's something bigger at stake here for you, Martha. And I'm going to tell you, like, that's actually what I'm here for. And you get to be a part of it, Martha, like you can choose the good portion too, and not in a way that makes it like your sister's better than you, but it really, I think that's why he addresses her so clearly of like, Martha, this is about you. I'm inviting you to choose the good portion that can't be taken from you. Like you can make me all the, you know, dinners that you want. And at the end of the day, like those are going to fade away. And yet what you choose to sit at my feet, like will never fade. And I think there's, I, I just think it's so important to note that Jesus could have just said like, I don't need you to do those chores while I'm here. Like, it's okay if your house is a little messy, but he doesn't say that. He says you're anxious and troubled about many things. Cause he gets that there's something bigger at stake there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Cause I, uh, I think about, I know for me and I think so many women like Martha, we're worried about meeting societal expectations. And when he says you're anxious about many things, I'm anxious all the time. <laughs> I think a lot of us are. And nine times out of 10, it's about making other people happy. It's about living up to what other people want from me. 
My anxiety comes when I feel like I have broken the expectations of other people. And I do think so much as women, we're socialized to be what other people want you to be. And if you're not doing that, then you're, there's something wrong with you. You're inherently not succeeding. And I think it's, there's at least room for us to see Jesus naming that with Martha. Cause yeah, I like that you highlighted that Jamie. He's like, you're anxious about many things. I don't think we ever talk about what might she be anxious about? What are these many things that Jesus is empathizing with having compassion for, because we know that's who he is, that there's something that she's going through that he intuitively understands because he's attentive to the experience of women and is compassionate to that. And I do think there's the possibility for us to read this as Jesus saying, like, I don't want you to be defined by societal expectations. I want you to be able to respond to my calling in your life and the new possibilities and the freedom that I'm inviting you into. Cause that's, that's kind of what Mary's doing is she's living in freedom. She's like, I don't care about what other people (laughs) think. I don't care what I'm quote unquote supposed to be doing. I'm going to follow this opportunity that's in front of me that Jesus is inviting me into. And she's defying the norms of her day. And frankly, the norms of our current day still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that Jesus is like, I think inviting Martha into that same freedom of you don't have to be anxious about what other people expect from you. You can step into who I created you to be in the fullness of what that could contain. It's so good. And I think part of what you're touching on that I want to highlight is like, so often we make it sound like Jesus thinks her anxieties are really petty yes. and we like turn her into like kind of this frazzled woman, like just cleaning and like, somebody help me. And like, that's not how Jesus responds to her. Like he's saying, you don't have to be anxious about those things, but he's not acting like they're petty. Like he's like, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Like I'm aware of that. I'm meeting you in that. And I just, I think that's so important for us as, you know, I mean, I'm kind of laughed after we laughed, like that we are like, I'm anxious all the time. Lol. (laughs) So funny how troubled I am. Um, But, but really like in a culture where there's so much that makes us, invites us into those anxious and troubled places, like that Jesus doesn't see that as petty, that Jesus doesn't say that's really small. Like, why do you care about that? Instead, Jesus says, I see that you're really anxious and troubled and I have a a better way that is much more liberating and much more freeing for you and invites us into that, but does not make it like make us feel small for those things that are troubling us. And I, I just love that posture. And I think it's so important because so often I think we trivialize Martha's concerns and, um, and Jesus says like, I get that there's something, there is something big at stake here. And that's exactly what I'm here for. (laughs) Like you, you are seeing accurately, Martha, like you are troubled about many things. And I think it, in some ways it almost like points out how liberating it is that Jesus is inviting her into that that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it feels so similar to how we 
read things into Jesus tone. Like when we were talking about Jesus interactions with Mary, that we, we assume his tone is dismissive or reductionistic or whatever it might be. And absolutely we read this interaction as Jesus being dismissive and yeah, seeing her, her anxieties as trivial. And it's just as likely, if not more likely that he's just making her feel seen Mm -hmm. that he's just giving her space to say like, actually, I know what you're dealing with. I know what's going through your mind and heart and not just in this moment, but what this represents and how you've been shaped by so many things to have this anxiety that you're not just, yeah, anxious about sweeping the floor today. (laughs) These things are deep rooted because of your lived experience. And I want to invite you into something else. And I think this is another place where we would invite male listeners to also connect with and identify with the, the experience of a woman in scripture that that has really beautiful potential for men as well. This It's not only women who are anxious about societal expectations. All of us deal with that. Men deal with that all the time, sometimes in the same way, sometimes in different ways. However it might be, all of us, I think, can really enter into this story of maybe pausing to say, what am I anxious and troubled about most often? And is that the better way? (laughs) Is it because... Am I experiencing that out of a desire to follow the better way? Or is it because I'm being shaped by unhealthy norms that are put on me that I assume I have to live up to? And what would it look like for me to choose the better way? I think that's another mistake we make with this story and really literally every story about women is we think it's only for women. And yet all male stories get to be for both men and women. (laughs) And I just really think we need to broaden that, that stories about men in scripture can be for both men and women and stories about women in scripture can be for both men and women and that there's a lot for our male listeners to draw from this as well to reflect on and think about where is Jesus offering new freedom for us and offering a better way that we could step into and follow him into so good I want to look um a little bit at the way that Jesus continues to interact with them and the way that Mary continues to live into that freedom, because I think it, it really builds off of that, that she has experienced a taste of freedom and just continues to live in a liberated way, um, not living into people's expectations. And so in John 12, this is moving quite a bit into Jesus's ministry And in fact, right before um, he will eventually be uh, killed on the cross. So six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Mary walks in and she goes to the the male only boys club dinner party and she walks in and has this elaborate extravagant worship of who Jesus is in this moment and I love that it says like Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table so the dinner parties of Jesus are consistently filled with resurrection and like liberated people who have been at one point demon possessed like we just see the consistent you know way that Jesus surrounds himself is with stories of his goodness really but it says Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment that because she is just looking at like Jesus resurrected my brother and therefore what else am I supposed to do but worship him and they are like you know there's multiple tellings of this story and each one points out how everyone is incensed by it that um there's actually one telling of it that uses the word like indignant that people there were indignant at this act of a woman coming in and being so extravagant and they're like this is ridiculous this woman is hysterical someone get the hysterical woman out of here and Jesus says leave her alone and I think that's so powerful that Jesus is like not just you know, affirming Mary, but he also takes issue with the way that Mary is treated. And I think so often we miss out on that piece of it. And we only focus on like, Jesus loves that worship, which he does, but he also says no to the people who are mistreating her. And I think that is also very important. And is calling out his bros (laughs) in the moment. Like I think for modern people and probably men specifically when you're in an all-male crowd and everyone is going a certain way in their opinion and how they're expressing it it's not easy to say the opposite and so I love that he's just like no dudes that's wrong and I it just makes me think about why did Mary think she could do that I think that she's confident that Jesus welcomes her in that space because he does (laughs) because her confidence is based on the truth. And so I think it's really powerful that she's like, I'm just going to go in here and, and follow my spirit that wants to, to honor Jesus in this way. And I think this makes sense. And kind of like with Mary, that she's discerning a divine moment Mm -hmm. of like, in a way that she could only partially understand, but I think it's very possible as being prompted by the Holy spirit that she's anointing him for burial in ways that Jesus understands. And she probably only partially understands, but she has a sense of this is the right time to do this. And I'm not going to wait. And I'm going to do this boldly. And I have confidence that Jesus will support me and will welcome me in this place. I think she would only have done that if she knew from experience that that would happen. And so I definitely think it speaks to her previous relationship with Jesus that she knows even if other people are confused or upset, Jesus will welcome me in this place. And so I'm not going to hold back. Yeah. I think often about like scripture is clear of the 
financial cost of this, but like Mary is aware of the cost that it's been for her to step outside of those boxes and that her sister has misunderstood it at points. And certainly she's experienced the way that people have certainly misunderstood the way that she is stepping outside of gender norms. And, um, and I often think about the fact that she had to have planned on some level to do this, that she had Mm -hmm. to have decided this is what this expensive ointment is going to be used for. And that there was something where she had counted the cost and then said, I'm still going to, to do this. And I think there's so many moments in our lives as women where it's very costly for us to step outside of norms and to be really extravagant and kind of outside of expectations of what it looks like to be devoted to Jesus and to continue to do that, that it's not just like a one-time thing for Mary, but that she has counted the costs and said yes. And so I just think there's so much beauty in this story for us as women who continue to count the costs and to say, like, people will misunderstand this. And the response of Jesus to those people is leave her alone. And so we now can trust in seeing that, that Jesus responds in the same way to us when we count the costs and we have really costly moments of stepping outside of norms and having a really lavish worship of Jesus in our own lives of whatever that looks like for people, but that the response of Jesus to the hypocrites who would try to like have a measured response to Jesus and have it kind of look really respectable and, um, and within reason, Jesus says, leave her alone to those people. And he really sees the reality of like costly worship. And he knows, he knows what it costs her. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think in every way that these men are kind of like indignant that she's there and like, could, could someone like, I mean, just think about what it would be like to sit there and watch this happen and like have that fragrance fill the room and kind of have this picture of what worship looked like before you. And then to, to have Jesus say like, this is exactly what I desire that she has. It's almost like he's saying like, once again, Mary (laughs) has chosen the good portion and, and it cannot be taken from her. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And what a beautiful corrective that is to the way that society treats women and in particular women in the church, like we talked about in our ladies who lead episode where we act like it costs women, nothing to show up. And when it's a room full of women at a church event, we're disappointed that more men aren't there. And I love that Jesus understands what it costs her. And he welcomes her and silences those who would scoff at her presence. And I think that's something so beautiful for us as women to rest in is even when it feels like no one else appreciates what it costs us to remain faithful. And if people even scoff at our offering that Jesus sees, sees the the depth of who we are and what it means for us to come and show up and bring ourselves and bring our offerings. And whether those scoffing voices are silenced in real life or not, that we know that Jesus 
is cosmically silencing them and is creating a place of welcome and quietness for us to come bring our offering and be ourselves. And how, how beautiful that is that we can rest in the presence of Christ, no matter what. So it's such an invitation for us that like, I can't imagine the like, Brene Brown has the phrase of like a vulnerability hangover. And I just imagine like Mary had to have had the worst vulnerability hangover ever mm-hmm. after that. But, but that she has seen the way that Jesus shows up to say, I, I really want you to have a place of welcome. And I affirm every time you step outside of those boxes for my sake. And so I hope that like women who have heard those scoffing voices kind of have a moment hearing this where we can have that moment of hearing Jesus say like I I silence those voices because I see the cost of it and I see what you're doing and I see the way that you honor and treasure me and so I think of every moment in my own life where like I have been troubled and anxious by the expectations to fit into a box that I don't easily fit in. And, um, and just that way that every time I've chosen like the better way of actually being myself. So like, you know, maybe someone like really fits those boxes and really likes, you know, certain things, but that it's not for the sake of fitting that box, but that it's for the sake of being our true self and bringing the wholeness of who we are into the presence of Jesus as an offering in the way that Mary teaches us. And I think, honestly, I just think it's so beautiful to start and end this episode with women who devoted their lives to worship of Jesus. And that that's part of what it looks like that when Jesus created a space of welcome for women, that he created a space for us to learn from women about what it looks like for us to worship Jesus. And so for women and men who are listening, we get the picture of what it looks like to worship Jesus from all of these women and in particular, Anna and Mary, that we are invited in to a new way of understanding extravagant worship as we see the fullness of who Jesus is. And so I just, I hope that that's been encouraging for, I I know it's been encouraging for us as we have continued to unpack this. And so I hope it's been encouraging for our listeners who um, are finding the ways that Jesus meets us in all of those troubled and anxious places and invites us into um, knowing him and worshiping him. So thanks for joining us today and for digging in with us. And we hope that it's helped you uncover your place in God's story. Mm